Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this podcast of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we feature an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest is Stephen Mumford, professor of metaphysics and dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Nottingham. We are discussing his book, Watching Sport, Aesthetics, Ethics, and Emotion, published in 2011 as part of the Rutledge series, Ethics and Sport. Think about this. In all your years of watching sports, is there one event or game that stands out, one that you still hold warmly in your memory, that you would describe as the best you've ever seen? Stephen Mumford's book begins with the best game he has ever seen, in a lifetime of watching sports. The experience led him to reflect on what we gain, if anything, from our time spent in the stadium and in front of the TV. Is there some deeper good to watching sports? Or do we get only a few hours of idle entertainment, with the only serious thought being whether we should open the ranch-flavored nachos or the barbecued-flavored chips? You probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you answered yes to that last question. Likewise, Stephen knew that there was something more to our watching sports. The question was, what? His book poses possible answers, but it also serves as a fillip to the back of the head in the way of all good philosophy writing by reminding us to think, even when we're on the couch watching a match. Stephen writes that there is no guarantee that everyone who watches sport will use it for personal improvement. Nor is there a guarantee of particular moral lessons in every event we watch. But even in the triviality of our games, there is the possibility of wisdom, if we only look for it. We begin the interview with an account of the best game Stephen has ever seen, and how that experience led him from being a philosopher who followed sports to a philosopher of sports. I'm a big soccer fan and I go to lots of games and um, uh, as I'm getting on in years now I've, I've got a lot of games behind me uh, but as well as being a professional philosopher I've always been a big sports fan and yet I thought I had to keep the two things apart uh, I mean to, to such an extent that you wouldn't often confess to other philosophers that you're a big soccer fan uh, you'd, you'd maybe talk about opera or something like that, something a bit more cultured. But in uh, 2007, uh, I attended this game in Spain, and it, it was at uh, the end of quite a long journey. I was, I was pretty exhausted, and I'd, uh, I'd not slept the night before on this uh, quite a long journey getting, getting to Madrid. So I went to this game, it was Real Madrid against Mallorca, and it turned out to be an absolutely 
fantastic game. The score kept uh, changing. The, the lead was changing hands. All the goals were really spectacular. They, they were shooting them in from 30 metres. And, and halfway through the second half, I had this realisation. The first thing I realised that although the game was tied at 3-3, I thought Real Madrid are definitely going to win this game. But the second, and far more importantly, I thought this is the best game of football that I've ever attended. And I've been to about a thousand, between a thousand and two thousand games. So it just, it was a pretty important moment for me. Maybe my emotions were heightened through the lack of sleep. But you know, this this was pretty amazing after all those games to think this is the very best. And I, I do confess there was a tear gathering in my eye. <laughs> Um, so then I, I just started to think about the aesthetics of sport you know, so I, th- I think there are many reasons people can watch sport one could be because they're gambling for instance uh, I think the, a very common reason why most people are there in the stadium is because they're supporting one of the teams and they're, they're there to see them win but it seemed to me that it was quite legitimate to sort of take it as a an aesthetic experience. Certainly that's the reason I was there, because I, I didn't really care which of the teams won. I wanted to see a dramatic, beautiful game. And it is a bit of a cliché, so that those of us who support soccer, it's, it's often known as the beautiful game. But I was interested in how seriously you could take that. And... We often consume sport, uh, uh, of course, as a, a leisure activity in, in the way other people may choose to visit an art gallery and consume art. So it became interesting the question of just how close the parallel is between sport and art. You know, we, we, uh, we can watch sport for aesthetic reasons, which is one of the reasons we, we uh, view art. But how seriously should we take that old cliche that you know, we sometimes consider whether sport can be art? You know, do, would that kind of uh, idea survive a, a more serious philosophical scrutiny? So that's what, one of the things I set out to do in the book. I was basically looking at the idea of um, the philosophical issues that arise from watching sport. And um, one thing I was thinking of was um, watching sport, it seems a passive activity. Uh, in, in, watching, uh, in, in playing sport, you could get health benefits, for instance, or you could get the benefits of belonging to uh, a sports club. But in watching sport, I was wondering what's philosophically interesting about that. And um, so the case I was thinking of, uh, which I think I also mentioned in the preface, is if, if you just conjure up an image of Homer Simpson watching the Super Bowl on TV and he's got a big beer and he's got a big bucket of potato chips, you might think it's just pure dumb entertainment and there's nothing at all edifying or improving that Homer gets from watching the Super Bowl. Now, that may be the case, but I don't think it's the case for everyone who watches sport. 
So as you said, you've been a, a football fan, a sports fan your whole life. Uh, but you admit in the preface that it's only been recently that you've come to, to the field of, of sports philosophy. Prior to that, most of your published work was in, was in metaphysics. So what brought you from, was it, was it these specific questions or was it something larger that brought you from writing about dispositions and natural law and Humean metaphysics to the philosophy of sports? So this is a this is something yeah. of a career career turn for you. What brought you to that? Well, it, it was largely accidental. So I didn't know that there was such a thing as philosophy of sport because one of my uh, old colleagues at my previous university in Leeds was a philosopher of sport, but I don't think I'd taken it seriously. So yeah, I. I um, first part of my career I, I, I did work as a metaphysician and my interest in sport was non-academic, kept completely separate um, I went along to a philosophy of sport conference just out of interest to see what was going on mm-hmm. and I never guessed I'd get sucked in <laughs> the way that I did because I think it's, it's probably fair to say, although it's unfortunate but the philosophy of sport is uh, it doesn't have the highest regard among philosophers. I think this is very unfortunate. So there's there's maybe a ranking where if you're a logician or a metaphysician, people are in awe of your ability and they think, oh, that's really serious stuff. And then as you go down epistemology and um, philosophy of science and so on, so it's almost like there's a ranking and then you get to more practical areas of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it may be the case that philosophy of sport is right at the bottom there. But I think that that's completely unfair. I mean, that there are just as many interesting philosophical issues there as there are in, for instance, philosophy of fiction, you know, philosophy of uh, film. The, these areas, I think there are many similar philosophical issues there. But philosophy of fiction, philosophy of film are quite respected. So I, I didn't see the, the ground for that. And once I attended a few philosophy of sport conferences and saw the interesting stuff that was going on, then I thought, yeah, I'll, I want to do some of that. So as you discovered, uh, philosophy of sports is a, is a developed field. There are professional organizations. There are conferences. There are uh, at least two journals published yep. in the field. And... Um, it is, as you just said, philosophy of sports is not highly regarded in the guild of philosophers, and I would say it's, it's safe to say that philosophy is not highly regarded among most sports fans. I don't hear my local sports guys <laughs> on the radio. Good or point. E- or even ESPN or BBC uh, talking much about philosophy. So what can philosophy bring to, for a sports fan, what can philosophy bring to our appreciation of sports? Ah, yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, it was almost as if I, I had a bit of a, a, a mission in the book mm-hmm. um, to kind of play an educative role and, and show if, if any sports fan chances upon the book who hasn't done any philosophy before, then I, I tried to write it in a way that they could come to appreciate some of the philosophical issues that were there. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it may be a, a, a vanity, but I did have a hope that uh, I could make some people think about sport philosophically, uh, people who hadn't done before. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I'm pleased to say I have had some opportunities um, to speak to audiences that I wouldn't usually uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really pleased that there has been interest in, in the sports world. And once you get talking to people about it, it's surprising how interested they become. Mm-hmm. So I've met a few former professional sportsmen and women and and told them about it and at first they, they're sort of a bit jokey about it maybe because there's a you know that in sports culture we're often encouraged to just sort of be strong and be a winner and, and not be too reflective but once you you get into a conversation it's amazing how interested they, they clearly are mm-hmm. so let's turn to the book uh one of the key themes of the book and something that I really appreciated is this idea that there are some fans who are purists and some fans who are partisans. So can you explain to start what, what characterizes a purist from a partisan? Okay, well, I'll just say by way of background that I, I feel in a good position to talk about these two kinds of fan because I have been both. So I had a long spell when I was a partisan. Now, the partisan is someone who they they go to the sporting event because they want to see their team win. And I think it is usually team sports that attracts the partisan. And I think there are some reasons for that that we could go into. Uh, but their primary interest will, will be in the victory. Mm-hmm. And to such an extent that they're quite prepared to see what I would now regard as a bad game mm-hmm. as long as it results in a win for their side so when I was a partisan I, I would much prefer to see quite a bad game but one that we won one, one to zero than to see a game that we lost 3-4 mm-hmm. so I did indeed see games that we lost 3-4 and for me they were worthless and I just tried to eradicate them from my memory as soon as possible and it ruined my weekend. The purist, on the other hand, I think, is someone who, who's sort of there for the love of the game and they want to see a good game. Now, this, of course, can include victory because one thing that makes sport good is mm-hmm. the drama that you get through having defeats and victories. And mm-hmm. without, without that goal, the, the two sides wouldn't be uh, trying their best. So you, you certainly want to see competition. But the purist might not mind which of the teams wins, mm-hmm. which of the teams achieves this beautiful victory. The other thing about the purist, I think, is they want to see the sport's higher values instantiated. Another way of seeing that is they want both sides, both competitors, to do their best play to the best of their ability mm-hmm. and in contrast to that I think the partisan would often be quite happy to see a victory if it, if it just came because the other team underperformed mm-hmm. so I remember cases like this because I, I supported a, quite an unsuccessful football team quite a, not, not even top ranking and occasionally in cup competitions they would draw against one of the real big teams like uh, Manchester United and we knew very well that if Manchester United played to the best of their ability we've got no chance of winning so what we were all hoping when we went to see this brilliant team visit the, visit our stadium 
we were hoping that they played terribly, you know. So, <laughs> so we missed a great opportunity because they they had some of the best players of the age, and a, a purist would would be wanting to see those brilliant players uh, do do um, as well as they could. But no, we didn't want to see that. So I'd I'd have been quite happy if the opposition, if the defenders slipped in the mud, if they made all sorts of mistakes, if it just didn't work for them, because victory was the primary motivation so that, that's the kind of distinction that I'm drawing between two kinds of fan and now of course I'm happy to accept that um, the partisan is numerically is probably dominates if, if, you, uh, if you go to the stadium mm-hmm. but then again if, if you think of people watching at home on TV uh, they may have no particular preference for one side or the other so they may just want to see a good game mm-hmm. Uh, or if you consider sort of uh, the expert pundits or analysts, they may be there just to see a good game because they're, they're there for the love of the sport, they understand the sport, they want to see it mm-hmm. uh, as, as good as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask a bit more about your, your personal history. Was in, in, uh, in going from being a partisan to a purist, did it, was it a moment of epiphany? What, what led you to move from, from uh, one type of, of fandom to another? And, and then I'll ask as well, um, is, is it an either-or proposition, would you say, that you must be a partisan or, or a purist? Okay. Um, well, starting with your first question, maybe it was a bit of a, an epiphany, but although I supported a team, I often did attend other games where I, I was a, a neutral mm-hmm. I didn't mind who won or lost I often found I did really enjoy those because I didn't have the kind of stress mm-hmm. that the partisan has especially uh, to remind you I, I supported a very unsuccessful team that lost more than they won anyway mm-hmm. so I had many ruined weekends and then, um, can I ask who this team was? You speak of it as a, like a recovering addict that you don't <laughs> want. <laughs> it's a fairly obscure team, and I don't know whether your listeners will have heard of them. They're called Sheffield United. Okay, yes, yes, all right. And um, I have since been to see them since I started being a real supporter, and I was worried whether I'd get sucked back into it, like like the recovering alcoholic who yeah. can't touch another drink. <laughs> But when I saw them, I found I was able to keep that under control. Now, maybe this is pure coincidence, but um, it coincided with the year my father died. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was starting to get on a bit in life. And I started to, maybe I was sort of challenging the, the decisions I was making in life. And I thought, you know, do I really need all this pain that this, this team brings me, which I, I never found was balanced out by the joy of winning. Mm-hmm. It's almost like winning was the default state that just kept you, kept you, um, kept you happy enough, but you know, the, the defeats seemed to have a stronger emotional effect than the victories. So then I had a season uh, when I tried, I was supporting my team and attending other games as a neutral but then at the end of that I, I decided that I was enjoying the the games where I was there as a purist just enjoying the sport I was enjoying that far more than when I was uh, there to support a team so I, I made a decision and that was uh, 
was about 17 years ago now, mm. and, I, and I haven't looked back. Now, the, the question of whether someone could be both... So the way I set it up in the book, it, I'm, I, I'm sort of describing these two traits, really. Mm-hmm. There's the purist and the partisan. And it's almost suggesting as if sports fans have to fall into one category or the other. Mm-hmm. But one response I've had is that that rather exaggerates the differences and most sports fans have got a mixture of both within them. So, yeah, they, they, would, they want to see their team win and that may be their primary motivation of, of the partisan. But you could say, notwithstanding that, they would still prefer to see a beautiful and dramatic win mm-hmm. to an ugly win. So it shows that even the partisan could have some aesthetic considerations. And uh, so the idea would be that uh, many sports fans are, are in a kind of uh, moderate purist position where they've got some partisan leanings but also some purist leanings. Now, I'm happy to concede that that is the case, and I think many sports fans will will fall on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So at one extreme, and it, it would be the extreme, you would have the complete partisan whose only interest was in victory. Mm-hmm. And I think I have seen some fans like this. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been to games in South America, and there are some fans who actually don't watch the game. They have their back to the match and they're, they're just sort of whipping up the crowd all the time mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't think they could have much claim to be a purist if they, they don't end up actually seeing much of the game and then at the other end of the spectrum you have someone who is just complete purist who have never has any interest in who wins or loses and I think maybe I'm towards that end of the spectrum mm-hmm. but I think in between that's where the majority of the fans are going to Mm -hmm. So what's going on there? Now, I've had to think hard about this. Um, It's only mentioned briefly in the book, but I've tried to develop the idea since. I think what what can happen is um, that we we can switch fairly rapidly between the two. So there will be moments in a game where, just in one particular move, maybe a player just some really effective and beautiful move and there can be a time where we sort of switch into mm-hmm. appreciating that pu- just aesthetically yeah. and forget for a moment that um, it's all about victory now I think we're able to do this because one of the other things I talk about in the book is how the partisan and the purist may actually see different things yeah, yeah. they, they mm-hmm. can see a different game but if you consider the uh, the Necker cube, so this is a cube that's just mm-hmm. line drawn, and it can be seen in different ways with either the bottom face as if it's at the front or the top face as if that's at the front. If you look at the Necker cube, you can switch between different ways of seeing it pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. So even if the partisan and purists see different things, I still think we can switch pretty rapidly between them. So then where you are on the spectrum, I think, could come down to how much of the game you're spent just rooting for your team Mm -hmm. and how much of the game you're spent in aesthetic contemplation. Mm -hmm.
So following upon that, so uh, I was interested in this, this idea that as a partisan, your perspective is somewhat distorted of the game. And, and I was thinking about this because you do talk about ethics and what we, uh, the type of ethical lessons we gain from watching sports. Uh, but can it be said that with a partisan, that ethical or moral perspective of sports is also distorted? And I'm thinking here of a recent recent uh, incident in in the Premier League of how Liverpool supporters stand by Luis Suarez uh, with this, this charge of racism, even though that just about everyone else involved in, in English football is condemning him. Or here in the States, another uh, uh, an example would be uh, the baseball player Barry Bonds. When he was at the end of his career approaching the record for most home runs, uh, he was by that time largely vilified by most baseball fans because of the accusations he had been taking uh, uh, performance-enhancing drugs, Yet supporters of his team, the San Francisco Giants, still were devoted to him and, and regarded him as a, as a great feel, figure in baseball. So can you uh, uh, make a connection between that, that uh, the perspective of a partisan and how it relates to gaining these larger lessons from sports that you talk about in the rest of the book? Yeah, so it's a good question and, and a good summary of the, some of the things I'm saying. So... I've got a chapter where um, I talk about the connection between aesthetics and ethics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so aestheticians, philosophers who, who work on art and aesthetics, they've often discussed whether there is this kind of tight connection. And I think that there is a fairly close connection, and I think that sport really illustrates it perhaps better than any other case. So the kind of standard example that, that they talk about in aesthetics is the case of Leni Riefenstahl. Now, she was a, a filmmaker who uh, had lots of innovative techniques. Mm -hmm. And for the time, and I'm talking about 1930s, she was probably the best filmmaker in the world. Mm -hmm. She was right at the cutting edge. She was probably the first filmmaker to use moving cameras, for instance, you know, so she, mm -hmm. could, she could mount it on rails and move it along. And so all, a lot of film techniques we now have uh, have their origin with Leni Riefenstahl. Mm -hmm. However, she was the filmmaker of the Nazi regime, and a number of her films were made in glorification of the Nazi regime. So there's a film called Triumph of the Will, which is um, an homage to Nazism and Adolf Hitler. So the question there is whether those ethical aspects of the film make it flawed as an artistic work. Because mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's two attitudes you could have to that. One you could say is that yeah, it's, it's aesthetically valued, valuable, and the flaws in it are purely ethical. But then the other attitude, the one that I support, is that the ethical flaws actually destroy it as an artistic work. Mm -hmm. So when you watch Triumph of the Will, it's actually quite uncomfortable to watch. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's uncomfortable is because you realise it's so ethically flawed. Now... 
there's lots of debate on that case in mainstream aesthetics, but I think the case of sport really illustrates it well. Mm-hmm. So the sorts of cases you're mentioning, I think, are really good. So suppose um, you um, uh, watch uh, a game of soccer and see this goal that it looks really brilliant. It's aesthetically really pleasing goal. But then when you get away from the stadium, you find that actually there was a foul play in the run-up to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that detracts from the aesthetics of it. Or another, perhaps one of the most famous examples, uh, would be the case of Ben Johnson winning Olympic gold in the 100 metres. Now, that was interesting because for a few days, we thought that was one of the greatest ever sprints mm-hmm. performed by a human being. And we could watch some slow-motion replays of Ben Johnson running down the track. It seemed physical, athletic perfection. Mm -hmm. Then a few days later, it emerged that he was using performance-enhancing drugs. So he was cheating. Um, He was stripped of the gold. And I think that also destroys it for us as an aesthetic experience. So... We can't go back and watch those same replays of him doing the run and, and enjoy it as much aesthetically. Mm-hmm. It's as if it's it's as if the ethical flaw has taken away from us the license to enjoy it aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Does it need to be an ethical flaw within uh, that relates directly to the sport? So the examples you mentioned are a. Uh, uh, a soccer player who, you know, maybe put, did a handball and then the ball went to his foot and he kicks it in and you find out this later and it, so then it, it dirties your appreciation of the goal. Yeah. Or the case of Ben Johnson who takes uh, performance-enhancing drugs and then there's the suspicion that this is why he was so dominant in the 100-meter final. What about the, oh, uh, flaws outside of, and this is where the, the analogy to Riefenstahl would, would come closer, is... is uh, flaws in the in the person's character. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think there is a line to be drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Luis Suarez, the Liverpool footballer, I think was the the wrong side of the line because mm-hmm. he was uh, believed to be racially abusing another player mm-hmm. during the game. But I think there is a line to be drawn. Mm-hmm. So I've got another chapter in the book where I consider whether athletes should be role models. Mm-hmm. So one thing we get in the UK, and I'm sure you get it in the US as well, is that if some personal character flaw is discovered of an athlete, mm-hmm. they're often vilified and uh, they're... Uh, they're told that this um, is is additionally bad because they're role models to everyone. People are going to imitate them because uh, sports stars are often our heroes and um, they've led us all down. So, of course, um, the, the, a kind of case I'm, I would be thinking of would be something like Tiger Woods, mm-hmm. whose uh, character flaws, if, if indeed that's what, um, didn't 
didn't seem to be anything to do with his sport. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that it makes him a greater or lesser mm-hmm. as, as a golfer that he has that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Of course, once, once that was all uncovered, yes, it did indeed affect his game. He mm-hmm. went through a, f- a few bad years. But I, I would actually w- want to defend Tiger Woods to an extent, mm-hmm. which is that... Um, I don't see that those character flaws were anything to do with him as a sportsman. And he didn't choose to be a role model, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Now, of course, had an athlete gone round telling everybody they were a role model and mm-hmm. tried to be like me, then maybe they're, you know, they're setting themselves up for a fall if they have indeed got some mm-hmm. uh, personal vice. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The status of role model, I think, gets thrust upon uh, the sports star. It's not something they've they've chosen to do. So that's the sort of basis on which I want to draw distinction. And I don't think that would be a defence of Leni Riefenstahl. uh, Because I don't think it was just that she was a great filmmaker but secretly a Nazi. Uh, It was that... You know, the glorification of Nazism was intrinsic to her films. That's what they were all about. Okay, so I okay. think it was a, you know, they were flawed artworks. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it had just been that uh, Leni Riefenstahl was maybe she was making films about other things. Well, yeah, let's get an example of, uh, say, Olympia, her film about the 1936 yep. games. Uh, would you view that as a flawed work of art in the same way that Triumph of the Will, uh, a film with its subject is is a party congress, uh, is a flawed work yeah. of art? Okay, well, I'll just say that although I've heard lots about it, I haven't actually seen it. Okay, okay. okay, but it's I've heard about it at the Philosophy of Sports conferences. So there the kind of consideration would be... Um, did she in the film just concentrate on the Nazi athletes and, and try to portray them in a glorified way and perhaps ignore Jesse Owens because of his race? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of consideration that would allow you to judge whether it was an ethically flawed work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So going back to... I find this interesting. We're deviating somewhat from the book, but but <laughs> I'm interested in this. Is um, uh, the athlete like Tiger Woods? Uh, yeah. So in your view, it's it's incorrect for us to uh, not appreciate his performance on the golf course, mm. owing to his personal flaws in that, and that we regarded him as a role model, and these flaws showed he's he. Sh- he was not a role model, mm-hmm. but but I was thinking of it not in terms of that. Was, in the case of Tiger Woods, it wasn't so much that we saw him as a role model. Now we realize he's not a role model, as much as a case he's just a lout. You know, in the same way I think of uh, whenever I read about John Terry, I think this guy is just <laughs> <laughs> he has he has few redeeming factors. How can I appreciate him? It's, it's not that I once held him as a role model. I just find him to be morally objectionable. So yeah. then how do I appreciate what he does on the pitch or what Tiger Woods does on the golf course 
when I think, you know, I wouldn't want to live next door to the guy. Yeah. Okay, well, I didn't follow every uh, detail of the Tiger Woods case, so Mm -hmm. I I don't know uh, just how objectionable he is. But here's what I'd say in defense, though. Okay. So, suppose I was an athlete, a young athlete, deciding on whether I should have a professional career. But then I've also got some personal vice that um, I'm unable to control. Now, would it then be fair if I was told that I couldn't pursue my career in professional sport because the, the vice may come out and then all the people who followed me as a role model would be disappointed? Mm-hmm. They may even imitate my vice. Mm-hmm. You know, so suppose I were an alcoholic, and um, you know, it's not a good example to set for anyone. But maybe a career in sport could actually help me with my vice. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I would see it as a bit of an intrusion in my personal liberty if I was pre- prevented from having a career in top-level sport just because I've got some personal vice. I think the John Terry case may be slightly different. Part of the reason some believe him to be a, a, a lout, an objectionable person, is because of the way he conducts himself on the field. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, so he looks, uh, he looks as if he's a bit of a bully. And, of course, if I was his coach, you know, one of, you often want that kind of character in the middle of, your defence because they they can control the game but as well as that he's he also gets accused of uh, you know he's he's currently awaiting a hearing for a charge of, uh, again a, a, an alleged racist comment on the pitch so this seems to me far more integrated with him the way he plays mm-hmm. but he, here's a character in contrast to that uh, so going back some years. Uh, in the England team the the best player for a while was a a player called Paul Gascoigne now he was a brilliant footballer and he he could do some fancy footwork that no one else could do at the time then emerged much later that A, he seemed to be an alcoholic and and B, he had other personal really strong personal vices that I, I don't particularly want to go into um, but if if we'd taken the football away from him, I mean, I think he would have really had a, a an even more miserable existence. And I think there's nothing wrong with sort of appreciating aesthetically him as a footballer uh, without consideration of the personal vices. Mm-hmm. In the book, you propose that that. Watching sports is good for us in three ways, aesthetically, ethically, and emotionally. So we've talked about uh, ethics, really, and I want to ask more about aesthetics. And it seemed to me that your ideas of beauty in sports come from your perspective as a, as a lifelong football fan. Uh, and and thinking of the examples of, of beauty in football, the, the fluidity of a striker running, the, the arc of a long ball, the precision of a pass, 
at midfield. But then as I was reading that, I was thinking, what if your first love, and, or in my case, my first love in, in sports is rugby or American football? And in yeah. these sports, there's an emphasis on force and power and, and to be direct on, on violence. So is there room in your view of aesthetics in sports uh, for that element of, of power and violence in sports? You know, so, to, so to put it personally, would your writing about beauty in sports have been different if you were a lifelong rugby fan as opposed to a <laughs> lifelong soccer fan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I like to think that the the sort of the the theory in abstract terms would be the same. Yeah, yeah. But some of the aesthetic categories I discuss may have been different. Mm-hmm. So the way I see it, I think there are there are very many aesthetic categories. When we think of aesthetics, we often just think of beauty, but I think that's fairly vague and and uh, it's not the only aesthetic category. The, um, often in art, the, the artist is not actually aiming at beauty. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a philosopher of sport in Portugal called Teresa Lacerda, who's done a lot of work on coming up with a classification of aesthetic categories. And she's actually gone round and, and interviewed coaches mm-hmm. from a wide range of sports and mm-hmm. come up with a really long list. So, yeah, that list is going to include things like power. Mm-hmm. Force, size. Now, what I would say about that is that I think most, I would probably say all sports are going to instantiate some of those aesthetic categories, but not every sport is going to tick every box. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So certainly you're quite right that there would be some aesthetic categories that get instantiated in uh, rugby or American football that are not in soccer mm-hmm. and vice versa so yeah and, and, and I was fairly conscious of this in, in writing the book that I didn't want too many examples to be chosen from soccer because mm-hmm. the danger there is that it skews the theory mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are different kinds of sport you know and those different kinds could raise different issues yeah. I'm not sure I was entirely successful because I'm sure at least 60% of the examples still do come from soccer. But from time to time, I try to include others where I thought it made a significant difference. Just to give one example of that, um, if you take the long jump, Mm -hmm. that's a sport where each competitor takes their turn. And legally, there's not anything that one uh, competitor is supposed to do to stop their opponent whereas in soccer of course you've got two teams playing against each other part of the aim is to stop your opponent playing Uh, it's not as if when uh, one person's running up to do the long jump uh, someone else is allowed to stick out their leg and trip them up or anything like that so I think we have to acknowledge that you know that sports come in a wide variety and um you would often get differences in this, this, the aesthetic categories mm-hmm. uh, according to the different sports. Let's turn to uh, emotion in sports. And yep. uh, you investigate the attachments of partisans to their teams. 
And you ask the question of why fans have such deep allegiances and intense emotional investment to their team. So, so what is it that you found, or, or what do you argue as to the <laughs> emotional attachment of fans to their teams? Well, I think it, it's clear that um, an emotional attachment in sport can indeed be a very deep, satisfying one. There are many cases where people's uh, relationship with their team is the longest relationship of their whole life. Uh, their parents die off, uh, they may get divorced from their spouse, and so on. Whereas uh, a relationship with your sports team can really be lifelong. I think there are some reasons for this. So I've got one chapter in the book where I, I talk about... Um, because it's a kind of collective activity, you know, you're, you're often supporting a team with a bunch of other people, not just the immediate friends you go to the stadium with, but once you're in the stadium, you can be there with 60,000 people. Now, I think that watching sport as a, as a collective experience can really intensify the emotions that are involved, whether it be the absolute joy of victory or the despair of defeat. And there's a couple of uh, cases that could illustrate that. I think if, if um, to put it crudely, I think the smaller the crowd in the stadium, then the less less intense your emotions mm -hmm. are. Whereas uh, the bigger the crowd, you, you get swept along with it and you, you feel things far more intensely. Um, so that's one thing we can say uh, about it. Uh, I then also... Uh, in another place I talk about what the, the object of allegiance is because one standard thing that we think about emotions is that they have uh, an intentional object mm -hmm. so there has to be something to which the emotion is directed I think that's a, a, interesting in the case of sport because the object to which your affections are directed is, is a, a very complex social entity that undergoes change. So, you know, the sports team can change its location, it can move to a different city, it can change the colour of its strip, mm -hmm. uh, it can even change its name. So it's a very complex and changing social entity. And I think this is part of the explanation of why I think allegiance is more often too sport uh, to team sports than mm -hmm. than individuals and i think the explanation of that is the fans themselves can be part of the complex social entity that is a sports club or team you know so many things change but one of the most constant things about the, the sports club is the fans themselves Whereas if it's a case of just, say, uh, saying tennis, you may have a favourite tennis player, but there's not really any sense in which you are part of the object of allegiance. You know, I, I can't be part of Andy Murray, the tennis player, even if I admire him. Whereas if, say, I, I support a football team, then it's a big, complex entity involving the directors, the players, although they come and go the tradition but part of that is the fans themselves so it's kind of like a self-reflective allegiance because you are part of the object to to which you're allied 
And then the, the other thing that I, I discuss uh, at the very end of the book is sort of how rational it is to have such allegiances, you know. So I ask the question, why do we care at all about sport? So I'm not denying that some people do indeed care. I mean, as I said, it's often a very intense and lifelong allegiance that you have. But it's also a very kind of a curious one because nothing really hinges on the outcome in sport. Now, I know there are professional sportsmen and women who stand to win and lose millions, but really nothing does matter getting the ball in the goal or getting the oval ball into the end zone you know it's not as if um, people live or die it's not as if it's a cure for cancer it's not as if uh, it makes us richer or poorer so I, I suggest it's a very kind of artificial contest that we set up in, in sport mm-hmm. we create this set of rules that permits victory and defeat but outside the rules, it doesn't matter. Take the case of golf again. What really is the point of hitting this small ball into just a slightly larger mm-hmm. hole? It doesn't really make the world a better place. Nevertheless, I think it is just intrinsically enjoyable. So one of the greatest books ever written in the philosophy of sport is Bernard Sue's book, The Grasshopper. And he considers... Um, Suppose our every material need was met. We had as much food and clothing as we needed. We had everything we wanted. What would we then do with our lives? And he suggests one of the things we would do is play games, just for the sheer intrinsic fun of it. So, yeah, it's not for anything else. It doesn't get you anything. But it's just a pleasurable thing to do. So that's one thing I think we're doing with with sport. But also, because it's ultimately meaningless, I think that's one of the things that makes it so safe as a kind of aesthetic and ethical uh, experiment. Okay, so in the case of morality, one thing I suggested that sport sets up these artificial contests of virtue. Mm -hmm. So we can have a struggle of the various athletes and we can learn from that ethically because we can see that those who uh, try the hardest and most dedicated they tend to win and it gives us moral lessons and the artificiality I think also makes it permissible for us to take aesthetic pleasure from it so one case I give in the book is a goalkeeper in soccer when they're reaching for the ball their body's fully extended available for our aesthetic pleasure whereas if um, a soldier was leaping in a very similar way but for their very lives you know leaping out of the way of a bomb or something then I don't think it would be good of us to just sit there thinking oh that's beautiful you know that's, that's, uh, it's great to see the human form fully extended no I, th- I think sport in setting up this artificially artificial and ultimately meaningless activity is basically making it available to us as a, as a pleasure aesthetically, ethically and emotionally so the very meaninglessness of sport actually becomes the reason why we care about it and why we're so interested in it 
you know, so it's often put to you, uh, why bother about sport? You know, it doesn't matter one jot who wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's the reason why I think we, we take the free choice that that's going to be something we're going to care about. But there are people, committed partisans, who, who do put great meaning into sports. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that at base they are aware, yes, this is ultimately meaningless, or uh, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, you know, the example of, of hardcore partisans, but I was also thinking of, of as sports is becoming larger and larger within, within society and culture, with, with millions, billions of dollars spent on arenas, uh, with with sports everywhere on television, is is are those elements that you just talked about that it's a pleasurable activity, but that it's ultimately meaningless? Are those things going to be lost? I think um, what we have to acknowledge is a, a, a more sort of general, a kind of existential viewpoint, which is that I think ultimately we can make choices in life about what's important to us and within that context I think having an interest in sport is no more valid or invalid than any other sort of free existential choice that we make Mm -hmm. so it's not as if there has to be some kind of objective quality of I, I would call it careworthiness yeah that we're supposed to tune in on and identify. Now, there are some things like that, maybe. You know, human suffering. You know, if, if, if that's something you can't care about, might think you're pretty screwed up. But I think there's nothing wrong with making a free choice to care about something that, uh, you know, ultimately not too much rests on it. In, in fact, I think, you know, that... Because nothing too much rests on it, I think that's what gives us the freedom to mm-hmm. choose it. Yeah. So, no, I'm, anybody who invests uh, so much of their emotional energy throughout their life in their sports team, I'm not going to claim they're ne- necessarily irrational. <laughs> it's not. It's not the choice I ultimately made. But mm-hmm. uh, many people do find a, a deep fulfilment in their lives through sport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Steve, we're almost out of time. I want to ask a, a question that, that gets away from the book, but uh, I think it's one that it would interest you as a, uh, as a football fan. So uh, you've indicated in the book your, your preference for the purist approach to watching, watching sports. So as a purist and as a philosopher, do you think that the current dominance by Barcelona in, in European soccer is something is something good, or is it... Or is it better, would it be better to have greater competition among, among several clubs? So in other words, yeah. what, is, what is the greater good, if that's the proper philosophical question? Yeah. To have one transcendent team or to have more, more parity among a number of clubs? Yeah, well, I think Barcelona are perhaps the most beautiful team that we've ever had in soccer. The way they play the game, I think it really does. Uh, it's taking it to a new level and it's a real pleasure to watch however I think there is a very good point behind your question because while they are instantiating some aesthetic values 
the way in which they pass the ball and so on. Mm -hmm. There are other things that get lost, so the drama of competition is lost. Most games that Barcelona play, they win so easily that it's not much of a spectacle. So I think that is one of the things that we look for in sport. We want to see a good, fair, relatively even contest. And so I think it's important in sport that we make sure we don't reward the winners so much that they just get better and better and out of sight. So it's one good thing I like in American football is the draft system, which my understanding is basically that the worst team one year gets the first pick of players the next year. Uh, I think that is, is quite a good kind of self-regulation, whereas uh, the, the soccer as it's practised in, in the UK and in most virtually every other country the winners get rewarded so much more that they they have ended up becoming uh, too good for the, their opponents and I think it's made it boring so if you take the uh, English Premier League English and Welsh uh, I think it has become dominated too much by the rich clubs and I'm one of the people who's lost interest in it mm -hmm. precisely because the competitive aspect has largely been lost and there's only a few games a year yeah. maybe between the big two clubs that, that are of any real interest mm. so yeah I'm going to enjoy Barcelona for a while and I'm going to enjoy watching how they play but I think it, if their dominance were to continue too much I'd probably lose interest yeah. Yeah. Alright so to close I'll ask you, uh, what are you what are you working on now have you returned to metaphysics or are you staying with with sports philosophy, what's your current project? Yeah, I've, I've been doing uh, a bit more metaphysics. Uh, I've finished a big project in metaphysics as well, working on causation. So I'm at quite a nice stage where I'm looking around and I'm, I'm willing to explore a few new areas. Having gone into philosophy of sport that I'd never done before, I got a taste for variety. So there's a, there's a few other things uh, in other areas of uh, philosophy of emotion and, est and, and ethics, nothing to do with sport, but sort of ethics generally that uh, I've got interested in. I think um, professional philosophers, especially when they're trying to establish their early career, they are forced to specialise a bit too much, and I, I think it's probably to the long-term detriment of the subject area because philosophy is a real holistic integrated discipline and I think the more we know about various things the better we are as philosophers so I'm in a nice position where I'm, I'm starting to uh, enjoy exploring new areas mm -hmm. Alright, well well, thank you for coming on New Books and Sports and uh, thank you for this book, I, I really enjoyed it as uh, it, it did raise a lot of questions about why I watch sports and uh, uh, I, I filled it up with notes relating to my own experiences. So, so thank you again. Well, great, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with Stephen Mumford about his book, Watching Sport, Aesthetics, Ethics, and Emotion, published in 2011 by Rutledge. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from pop music to public policy. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback 
and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.